What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Zach from Citizens and Saints. Our new album, Amir Dimly, is out, and we cannot wait to play these songs for you live. We'll be traveling with our friends King's Kaleidoscope, who also just put out a new record, Beyond Control, along with special guests, the Sing Team, for the Live Love Tour. Starting October 14th, we'll be in Des Moines, Iowa, and then traveling through the Midwestern parts of the states, we'll end on October 19th in Columbus, Ohio. For more details or to get your tickets today, Go to livelovedtour.com. Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Come on, come on, put your hands into the fire. Explain, explain, as I turn and meet the power this time, this time. Turning white and sense is dying Pull up, pull up From one extreme to another Well, welcome to hell again, everybody, at the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Hi, Adam. 
Hi, John. It's, it's good been to a while. See, it's good to see you again. <laughs> you guys don't even know. It's It's been about a month, I think, since we've uh, recorded anything. So you guys have been listening to all stuff that's, um, you know, been pre-recorded and we've been sitting on for a while. So We're knocking the rust off a little bit here. Yeah, we had to remember what to say. We're very Goodness. professional. We're so, we are so pro, man. <laughs> This is this is awesome. So what do we got this week? We got a uh, we're we're gonna launch into hell specifically as a topic, right? Ooh, this man, is, this is a touchy one. This is this is probably like when we started. Yeah, I think covering the topic of hell. In fact, I remember the first <laughs> time, one of the first times you came over and we were talking about just all of the different sort of deconstructive ideas that we were contemplating about our faith and spirituality and tradition. And you were like, "Man, have you ever read the book?" by the theologian Sharon Baker, who now goes by Sharon Putt, called Raising Hell. And I was like, oh yeah, no. And you were like, I'm giving you a copy. You've <laughs> got to read this book. Yeah, It is unbelievable because everybody talks about Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, which is great, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's not chock full of content. Right. Like if you want lots of resources and citations and footnotes and backup and uh, stretched out arguments, you're probably not going to get that in Love Wins. You're going to get some right. great ideas mm-hmm. and some great things to think about, but you're not going to get that kind of academically researched thing that you get from Sharon. Yeah, I so. think it's funny because I, I, I read those two books simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So the Sharon put, uh, or Sharon Baker, as she, uh, her, her um, uh, I guess, maiden name? I don't know. I whatever think she's got whatever the hell it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it's like you said, it's a little bit more content rich. And so some of the ideas that were presented in, in love wins, I was able to kind of supplement with, with reading raising hell. So, um, yeah, it's got a little bit more, uh, research in terms of the scholarship kind of aspect or whatever, and just kind of going into things a little bit more deeply. Cause of course, love wins goes into more topics than just, just hell. And this book is dedicated, you know, purely <laughs> Pretty to the, much just to hell. Yeah. I'll yeah. tell you what, if you, People got really mad about Rob Bell's book. Yeah. Mostly people that hadn't read it, I found pretty funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I hate that book. A lot of heresy. He's a, yeah. he's a universalist. John, John Piper kicked him out of the church, I guess, because of that book. You know, <laughs> yeah. fare, farewell, Rob Excommunicated Bell. Excommunicated yeah, him. Because yeah. you can do that, I guess. Right, in the evangelical church. Because I guess we can do that. The world. <laughs> yeah. But when I read the book, I remember thinking, A, what's everybody so mad about? Right. You know, and if you read this book, there's a whole lot more in it and there's a whole lot more to get mad about. If you yeah. really, if you really want to get mad yeah. and hearing some like really expounded ideas, Raising Hell is definitely the book that you should pick up and and really get your get your gears rocking. And the interesting thing though to me is that um we don't we don't obviously want to present any ideas or new new thoughts on the show that aren't uh backed up with with good research and good da- data and and good scholarship and and you know, scripture. Right. Um, and so that's the thing that, that it was kind of always curious to me. The reaction is always like people getting, getting really mad. I'm like, if, if we could find a, a nicer way to present this topic, wouldn't you prefer that? Right. Over eternal torment. So it's kind of interesting, but yeah, this, this is really, really, uh, I think faithful, mm-hmm. um, to, to scripture. Oh my um, gosh. Yes. I mean, she goes, Pretty pretty hard into scripture, specifically you know the Greek and and uh, Hebrew interpretations of the words that refer to uh, to hell. So I thought I thought that was good. But no, um, she is a legit bona fide scholar. Yes, like this isn't just somebody whose hobby was to like write a book about hell because they were interested. I mean, this is this is some serious academic 
there's some fortitude in this book. This is this is legit. Yeah, she is a uh, she is a, an assistant professor of theology and religion, and a coordinator of the peace and conflict studies program um, at a college that will remain nameless <laughs> <laughs> at her request. Yes, um, you know, uh, obviously this is a very um, controversial topic, and uh, as with anybody else, I think who's written you know a book on the topic that doesn't fall in line with traditional views. Um, Sure, she took a little heat, so at, at her request, we will uh, we will omit the name of uh, the, the university. But um, she's published, you know, numerous articles, and she's a, a regular speaker on nonviolent atonement and hell. Um, and uh, uh, she does have uh, another book out, and is working on another book that she references um, uh, in the interview. But uh, her latest book is about atonement theories, and uh, that's an excellent book as well that you should check out. But absolutely. And, you know, just to tie in a couple of our past episodes, you know, if this is something that you find really, really interesting, um, this is an important topic. And I think a lot of people, um, the topic of hell, eternal judgment, you know, eternal destiny, essentially, is a big deal because we all know we're mortal. And we all know that religion in some way, shape or form is supposed to somehow bridge, bridge the gap from, you know, mortality here to some sort of immortality or what thereafter. And a lot of these conversations are very reflective of what we think that God or ultimate reality is actually like. So yeah. when we have conversations about judgment or atonement or, you know, eternal destiny, you know, what these concepts are, people get really upset about it because essentially they don't, they, they, they maybe don't realize it, but they're staking a lot of their whole view of God, a lot of their view of, of life here on these concepts and it can shake you up a little bit but i think that if you're listening to this program you probably have realized that maybe being shaken up is a good thing and a lot of the ideas we have maybe didn't come from as firm a foundation as we maybe once thought and maybe it's a good idea to just listen to what some other people have to say out there and again you don't have to agree with everything somebody says to agree with anything somebody says so we want to cut to the interview. Do you have anything else to say before we roll tape? Yeah, just uh, like I said, you know, like you just said, keep an open mind, and also keep in mind that we're not done yet this month. No. So next week we will we will kind of dive into another alternate view. Uh, so if you don't like this one, it's okay. Hang uh, in there. Hang we, in there. Hang in there. We've got another one next week, and then uh, Adam and I will wrap it up at the end of the month uh, with some other ideas and, and, and thoughts and just kind of wrap up the whole month. So, and if you have anything that you want John and I to sort of talk about or talk to, yeah. we have not recorded that episode yet. We've got our notes working and our research piling up, but we, you can tweet at us, email us, uh, do whatever you can. And we'll try to hit some of the things that you guys are interested in, um, from the series on hell and devil and evil and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> without further ado, we roll tape on this. Let's do it. All right, here we go with Sharon, Sharon freaking Putt. From the summer to the spring, from the mountain to the end. From Samaritan to sin, 
Well, Sharon, Sharon Putt, Sharon Baker. People <laughs> might know you by uh, Sharon Baker a little bit better from uh, your, your famous works. Uh, we've got Raising Hell here. We, we're going to talk a lot about that. We're also going to talk about executing God. And uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We're so glad you're with us. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be with y'all. Thank you. Excellent. Well, one of the first questions we like to ask uh, of our guests is we're always curious about how it is that you got into doing the work that you're currently doing and um, just kind of uh, a little bit about your background. So if you could, you know, what, what kind of household were you, were you raised in? Was it particularly religious? And how did that inform uh, kind of your career today? I was raised as an American Baptist um, through about fourth grade, and then we stopped going to church. My mother was always a Christian, very, very um, pious, you know, spent time in church, but I didn't. So it wasn't until I was about 26 years old that I finally realized that there's something to this thing called Christianity and this man, Jesus, dying on a cross. So I became a Christian um, and really when I got married and moved to Florida, um, we lived in Tampa for a while. I had four kids. And began to teach women's Bible studies and those kinds of things. And belonged to a fundamentalist Southern Baptist church, which is what I became, a fundamentalist Southern Baptist. Held to the traditional versions of hell, you name it, everything that a conservative Southern Baptist would believe, I believed. And then I went to, decided to go to seminary and get some teaching to enhance my teaching at my church um, after we moved to Dallas, Texas. And all hell broke loose in my mind. Um, I had good professors that pushed the envelope. And I began to question the validity and um, of a God who would make people burn an eternal punishment forever and ever for a temporal sin. The punishment did not seem to fit the crime. Mm. And then that led me to thinking about theories of atonement. If God truly forgives us, then God doesn't need payback of any sort. Mm. Um, and so penal substitutionary theories of atonement, which was the theory that that so resonated with me that I became a Christian, satisfaction theories of atonement, just never, they stopped making sense to me. Mm. And so then I began to be very concerned about religious violence in the world. And I, I began to think about how does this happen? Why do Christians who follow Jesus supposedly think that they can justify such horrendous violence that we've seen committed by Christians throughout the centuries? And um, I, it, it just really bothered me so much that I realized finally that the image of God that we hold in our hearts and minds really does matter. If we think God is violent, whether that's a violence of needing the violent death of someone on the cross in order to forgive sin, or the violence of eternal punishment that goes on forever and ever, if we need that kind of a God and we follow that kind of a God, God's violence makes it easier for us to justify our own violence. And, and so I realized that our theology really does work itself out in our behavior. And if we can imagine a God who's restorative and rather than retributive, uh, who forgives um, true forgiveness, just wipes the slate clean without needing payback instead, a God who is 
gracious and loving and open-armed, then maybe we can behave in the same way. And so that's really what got me started on this project. So in order to do that, I had to rethink the two theories that I think we have typically, um, I can't think of the word, we're going to have to edit that part out. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> have promoted this this picture of a violent god, or the atonement, and hell. So those are the first two books I wrote, one on hell and one on the atonement. Um, because our theology makes such a difference in um, the the image we give of who God is, of how Jesus has us behave, the way we're supposed to live our own lives. But in order to do that, I also had to rethink concepts of justice. Is justice retributive? If it's God's justice, is it restorative? Mm. What kind of justice is divine justice anyway in view of a different view of hell, a different view of the atonement um, that gives us a God that's really against violence? Um, mm. And which I think God is against violence. And so that's that's how I got started. Oh, wow. wow. So before we even get into some of the uh, alternative views or alternative theories on, on hell, um, I'd like to start with a little bit with um, kind of more of the historical side. You know, where does our modern idea of hell come from? Because it doesn't appear that it's, uh, you know, necessarily from Scripture, but it seems like it's informed a lot from Dante's Inferno and a lot of medieval literature and art. Yeah. That's true. We get a lot from Dante's Inferno, and that's probably where hell was really popularized and is still today because people are still reading Dante's Inferno. Mm. But and, and scholars are, nobody can really agree on where it first started. Some believe, um, we've got Jamie Clark Souls, who believes that hell began in Egypt, the concept of some sort of eternal punishment, a little bit with the Book of the Dead, more in the Book of Gates. Um, some people think that it began with Plato, uh, and then in the West, of course, with Dante and Virgil's Underworld. Uh, other people, some authors say that the land of the dead is in the imagination of the living. Whoa. Aimed at, right, and it's aimed just so that human beings, even from way back in Egypt, could distance themselves from death itself. Uh, others believe that it came about because it was a, a way to coerce virtuous behavior in people. Mm. Uh, and so there's all different ways to think about it. Hell appears in language um, around the word hell itself because hell doesn't appear, that word, in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, but it appears in language sometime around the 8th century CE. Um, and and it was used in order to introduce pagan notions of, of this place of punishment into Christian theology. So nobody really knows where it began, but I think Dante, like you said in the beginning, Dante is one who's made it quite popular. Um, so before, and again, before we get into some of the alternate uh, theories, um, could you talk a little bit about uh, some of the scriptural uh, references? Because one of the things that I think, I wasn't even aware of that I thought was really interesting in your book was where you talk about um, kind of the uh, issues with, with translations from the original text in Hebrew and Greek into English and how um, there aren't necessarily words uh, that mean hell 
Um, hell is actually a, a very English word. And um, the other one that I thought was really interesting is uh, the word eternity. Right. Yeah, eternity, we'll start, we'll start there in the Old Testament, Olam, and in the New Testament, Aeon. Really, when it's thought of as no beginning or no end is when in Scripture it applies to God. In other places, for instance, Jonah in the belly of a whale, he was in the belly of a whale for Olam, eternity. Well, we know it was three days. Now, maybe it felt like an eternity to Jonah, but the word itself has a beginning and has an end. Um, The Jews were supposed to observe Passover for Olam, eternity. Mm. But we know that eventually that's going to stop as well. Um, We just have over and over, there's some in uh, Ezekiel, where Sodom's fiery judgment is eternal until God returns them to their former state. And so we've got words used, olam, in Hebrew that really don't mean no beginning and no end like we interpret it to mean. Hmm. Uh, and I, I could give you more, but, you know, they go on and on. In the New Testament, we have aeon used for don't be conformed to this aeon. Well, don't be conformed to this eternity. That's not what the word means. Right. It's this age. So it's another word that could mean age. Um, John 9, since the beginning of Aeon, no one has healed a man born blind. Well, you know that that can't mean no beginning and no end because he's talking about a temporal time period. Um, So there's... Don't be conformed to this aeon. Uh, Onesimus is back with um, Paul for an aeon, for an eternity. And we know that that can't be true as well in the book of Philemon. And so there's there's verses in scripture where those words are used that we would interpret eternity in other places to mean no beginning and no end, but they really don't mean that. So in other words, when we're talking about periods of time in scripture, unless it's applied to God, it, eternity is not eternal. It, it has a beginning and it has an end, but mm. we don't we don't think about that when we read those words in Scripture. And you see that in the sayings uh, of Jesus about Gehenna, especially in Matthew. There's some in Mark, uh, and typically the word used is Gehenna, which is the valley outside of the city of Jerusalem where the dead were thrown and burnt up. Um, some think it was a garbage place where they threw their garbage and the fire just kept burning and burning and burning as they threw more garbage on it. You could imagine the maggots and the smell. Mm. You'd go to, you know, you'd go to throw your trash, whether it was garbage or burning bodies, it would be a place where you'd be gnashing your teeth and hoping you'd get out of there pretty quick. And that burns for eternity. Well, it's not burning anymore. So you know that those words can't mean forever and ever. Man, there's just so much, um, we, we just had a conversation with Walt Brueggemann and um, this, this concept of interpretation is just, mm-hmm. is just a conversation that just, I think people just need to be more aware of just what interpretation actually is yes, and just, yes. and how porous and how uh, stretchy and flexible and, yeah. um, and just how, you know, people are going to hate this, but subjective, it actually, it has to be, it's impossible to not interpret right. subjectively 
So I, I, lo- I just love these conversations. It's really kind of why we started the podcast, because the more perspectives people hear, the more they realize how much theirs was inherited and how, how little they had to do with so much of what they believe. So um, the concept you're covering right now is you're talking about this interpretation of this word eternity. So it's mm-hmm. a much more uh, open word. It's a much more nuanced word. It's a must, much more uh, ambiguous word than people think it is. You know, Americans think that English is the greatest language of all time. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, eternity. You know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And that's what the word means and blah, blah, blah. But I, you're opening it up to this, you know, there's a whole world of interpretation there. I want to I take you a little further into the definition of hell. So most people, when they think of hell, if they're reformed or if they, you know, fundamentalist or if they've been raised, you know, hearing, you know, those gospel presentations of the 50s, 60s, and 70s know that hell is eternal conscious torment. So we kind of co- right. covered the spaciousness of that word eternal. What about torment? Like, what, where is this coming from? The fact that, you know, tor- that's a pretty severe word. Um, where, did we, where did we get this idea of not only is it eternal, it, and this isn't ret- retributive, this isn't uh, restorative, this is torment. It is. It is. And some think it's retributive, and which is one of the problems with it. Is God really retributive? But the torment, um, when when concepts of the afterlife were were in vogue in the West with Plato, for instance, mm. um, and Homer, um, some some of their concepts of eternal placement in a place like Sheol, for instance, right. were not punitive whatsoever. They were just holding places. Hmm. Um, there's no concept of hell whatsoever in the Old Testament. There's this place where the dead go to be held until a certain time. And so the torment piece didn't even come about, some scholars say, until much later, um, probably at the beginning of either the, the, between the time, between the new, the two testaments. Hmm. Um, the intertestamental before, period. <laughs> the intertestamental period. Thank you. I'm, I'm so struggling with, with my words today. My thesaurus is not working at all. Mine usually doesn't. So you, you'll have to fill in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> just see Adam's voice just uh, popping in here and there. <laughs> It'd be better if so, this was on yeah. video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all can do that. You're talented. Yeah, we'll figure it so, out. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. So these words, uh, the, the torment was a fairly late development that really came into play from Zoroastrianism, oh, okay. the Persian religious traditions that found their way into this ancient Jewish literature that finally found their way into centuries and centuries later into the Christian texts. Um, and then, of course, the sayings of Jesus about Gehenna um, are what would pe- people would interpret it as being torment, where there's gnashing of teeth and yes. the worm doesn't die and the fire never goes out. Right. Because um, Jesus said that, right? <laughs> Jesus said that, yeah. And there's answers for that as well in the outer darkness. But um, again, I personally think that Dante really made this idea of punishment quite popular. Um, but it was popular before him. If you read some of these um, patristic theologians 
who would talk about the joy that God gets from seeing people who are sinners suffer. Um, yeah. It's just incredible to me that, that theologians, and these were good theologians, could actually believe that God would find pleasure in the eternal torment of, a, of someone that God is supposed to love unconditionally. Yeah, I just can't. I don't know. I can't get there. Yeah, it's just unfathomable. So before we get into uh, some of the uh, theories like annihilationism and universalism, um, talk a little bit about, I thought this was also interesting, and, and before we move on here, um, the, the word, the term hell in general, um, especially when it comes to, I think you mentioned the, the King James Version just kind of generalizes all of these references to the afterlife um, as hell. And I think you kind of touched on a little bit with Sheol and Gehenna. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that's a, a common misconception, uh, uh-huh. perhaps, where people just assume that it, it's all it's all just hell. But that's not the case uh, in the original languages, correct? Correct. Yeah. In fact, Gehenna is the most popular word, which I said is a valley outside Jerusalem. And um, that's used about 12 times, 11 of those times are in the Gospels used by Jesus. And there's another word, Hades, which is a more Greek word. It's a place of the dead, a grave. Um, That's used about 10 times within all of the New Testament. It later developed implications of a place of eternal torment, but it wasn't that to begin with. Um, Then you have the word Tartarus or Tartarus, however you want to pronounce it, which is a pit or an abyss in Plato, where the souls who are punished uh, after death go. Um, It's in Virgil's underworld. In Greek mythology, it's both a god and a place for the dead. And that's only used one time in 2 Peter in the New Testament. And so you've got these three words that are used that most Bibles, now I think they're saying Hades in some of the versions, but most of them, especially King James, just says hell. And they all give different viewpoints on what is actually happening. Um, are you going to hell where, you know, it destroys both the body and soul where the worm doesn't die, which is the word for, you know, what they, Jesus uses Gehenna. Um, or is it just a place, you know, where you go after you're dead? But we don't make those distinctions in the New Testament. Mm. So, so with that, I think that's a great place to to kind of start looking at some of the the alternate theories. So, um, if I remember correctly, you you kind of look at a couple different theories: uh, universalism and annihilationism. For those who aren't familiar with those, um, maybe you could speak about those uh, a little bit and kind of explain what those mean. Yeah, universalism, and I like to be sure um, is that way that my students and people know that when I talk about universalism, I'm talking about specifically Christian universalism. Hmm. There's a big, big difference between Christian universalism and universalism. What's the difference? Well, with universalism, uh, a lot of people believe that just means everybody goes to heaven or everybody is one with ultimate reality. Hmm. Um, Christian universalism, however, says that all people are saved in Christ. Oh, okay. 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 All right. Yep. I get it. And so I have finally come out of the closet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't in raising hell because I was I just didn't. I was gonna say I I didn't I didn't get that from from raising yeah. hell. So is yeah. this a recent development? Well, I was probably a Christian universalist back when I wrote Raising Hell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So so explain uh, what it is and what what appeals to you more so about that theory versus uh, the others out there. Yeah. Well, Christian universalism, when you think about God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you know, you've got the world in there, all human beings. We're taught that God is love and that God loves all human beings. And and God seeks to restore everyone to a um, righteous relationship with God's self through Jesus Christ. And then you have those verses in Romans chapter 5 where transgression came to the world, sin came to the world through one person. Mm, yep. And that, that person was Adam. Gosh darn it. But then I know, really. <laughs> I'm talking to Adam right now, aren't I? That's no. right. <laughs> but then, but, I love it because there's always a but in there. You get the bad news and then you have this, but God does such and such. and we have sin came to all people through the first Adam, but then righteousness comes to all people through the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's a universalist statement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's a, I think it could be interpreted as a universal chapter, you know, Christian universalism in the book of Romans, uh, because logically speaking, if, if all die in the first Adam, then all live in the second. I get, I get that logic. I, I get what you're saying yeah. there. Yeah. And so if, if we hold a high view of what Jesus did on the cross, which is a whole other topic of conversation, then for me, I have to be a Christian universalist because I think the atonement uh, of Jesus was so effective that it saved the world. Everybody, everyone. And I'm not a determinist. That's what held me up from being a Christian universalist in the beginning was that, well, that's deterministic. And I don't think God determines, you know, our eternal fate. Um, But for me, and I talk about this in the hell book with the story of Otto. Do you remember the story of Otto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not a determinist. But we also have scriptures like 1 Timothy 4 that says that um, God is the savior of all people, especially of believers. And that's interesting because God is the savior of all people, especially of believers. So that in that all is included those who aren't believers as well as those who are especially believers. Mm. So you've got a universal Christian universal statement there. Then you have another place in first John um, that talks about Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And then it says, not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Yeah, yeah. And those are universalist, Christian universalist statements in my mind. Um, pretty clear ones. Of course, it's my hermeneutics, right? My, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I love that, it. I love it. Um, and so, as a Christian universalist, I have to believe that God is powerful enough, loving enough, and the effect, efficacy of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are um, so 
incredibly graciously full that all people are saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And that's Christian universalism. Okay. And and the interesting thing too that I I, I thought you uh, addressed the the topic of uh, fire uh, within the within scripture in an interesting way. Um, God's holy fire within the context of universalism. Could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I I, I wanted to know. Of course, started with reading about the lake of fire and burning in hell forever and ever in a fire. So I did a study. This is how I research, which may be kind of silly, but. <laughs> I look up the words in the Greek and the Hebrew, and I, I get every single reference to those words in both Old and New Testaments in the you know languages, and then read them all. And and so I did that with fire. Found, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a hoot. <laughs> it was kind of, actually, it was quite eye-opening. Oh, it was yeah. Fun. Um, starting with the burning bush, you know, that didn't consume it and I thought why didn't that bush get consumed by this fire so what you what I found is that every time it's fire from God this eternal fire and God is a consuming fire we're told in the New Testament I found that God's fire burnt up anything that was sinful anything that wasn't um, pure anything wicked and left what what was left was the righteousness and anything that was righteous, the fire didn't touch, which is why, for instance, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego mm. were not burnt in the fiery furnace. And though the people who pushed them in were burnt and there was nothing left of them. And so they were righteous and, and the fire would only burn wickedness. And so I thought that was very interesting. And then you go to first Corinthians chapter three that talks about anyone, everyone builds a foundation, and the foundation is oh, Jesus Christ. Yep. Anyone who builds on that foundation builds with wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, or precious stones. Mm -hmm. And it talks about everyone's work will become evident for it will be shown in the day, um, which we think is the day we all appear before God. Most people interpret it that way. But anybody's works will have been built with gold, silver, or precious stones. Though Any works that remain will receive reward. Those whose works are totally burnt up, that have nothing left, says, will be saved yet so as through fire. So you have the same idea of the righteous stuff sticking around and the wicked stuff being burnt up. Yep. So the fire itself, when we die, and I, I hold to a posthumous um, judgment where we stand before God in the fire. And those of us who are righteous in Christ will be left unburnt. Those who come before God um, will have, who are walk before God that are unrighteous, will have all of that chaff burnt away. And it's not a purgatory because it's in an instant. Um, and I tell the story of Otto um, in the book about this man who is very, very, very evil. He's done horrible things to people. Um, I wanted to use Hitler and thought that was just, you know, too pedestrian. So <laughs> I p picked a name, Otto. And <laughs> and his last name was going to be Oluk, but he was Otto Luck. But, oh, but, that's <laughs> cute. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't Otto Luck, you know, at the end. So the publisher said, that's that's a little too cute, so he can't do that. Um, anyway, he stands, he hates God, he knows he's going to die, and he's he's got this 
you know, horrible attitude. He hates God and he's rebellious and he's um, unrepentant and he's just, you know, he's, I'm going to burn in hell and I know it and, you know, kind of screw God kind of attitude. Well, he ends up before God in this consuming fire, which is truly love. Love is the consuming fire. And, mm. and the more he stands in this fire and judgment, which is really just very fast, all of the wickedness starts to burn off and he realizes that he's standing in the fiery love in this incomprehensible, extravagant love that is confronting him and burning him makes him realize the depth and the depravity of his life and the sin and the wickedness that he's partaken in and makes him completely repentant. So by the time this fire is burnt away, all the wickedness, he's completely um, undone with grief and sorrow over the life that he's led and the harm that he's done. And he stands finally before God with all the wickedness burnt away and whatever little bit of righteousness is left, that's there. And God would say to him, then will you enter into my kingdom through the grace of Christ? And what is a fully righteous person going to say? Yes or no. And I say, he's going to say yes. There gets rid of determinism for me because the, all that's left is righteousness and a fully righteous person who's been purified in that way and God's fire of love would never say no. Um, wow. And so that's my shtick on fire. I can be somebody, be somebody, I think that's a perfect segue into the subtle differences between universalism and annihilationism. So what, what is the difference there? Well, an annihilationist would say that there would be, there's different ways to do it, but one of the most popular ways is that people who have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior in this short little lifetime that we have um, would go to hell and either be annihilated immediately or when hell is thrown into the lake of fire in revelation, that is an annihilating fire. Um, the word used in the Greek would refer us back to that kind of fire that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego went into that totally annihilated the people who threw them in. It's the same idea of fire, the hottest fire they had at the time in that, in the course of history. Um, and that would completely burn them all up. So there's not an eternal punishment. Um, there's an end to it when they're finally annihilated in the lake of fire. Mm, wow. Yeah, so there are unsaved people who are absolutely no more. There's no eternal life. It's amazing to me that uh, the more um, I research theology, it's so many theologians that, you know, start off their career, you know, full of structure and, you know, good systematic theology. You know, I think of guys like uh, A.W. Pink and John Stott. And, um, yeah, I read all those guys. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, you know, it, it seems to me like even the more like N.T. Wright writes, it, it just is taking taking people more away from defending uh, this need for retribution right um to a more open kind of like well you know hey at the end of the day i'm not really sure what happens but 
the more I focus on everything that scripture talks about, which love outweighs, you know, all of these kinds of punitive images. That's right. <laughs> by a ton. Oh yeah. It, there's no comparison. There's just no comparison. I just, uh, <laughs> I just want you to know, I really appreciate um, a lot of what you're saying here. I, I do have a question kind of uh, coming out of a, a reformed tradition myself. I was always uncomfortable with hell. I got into reading C.S. Lewis, and then he led me to George MacDonald, and I know you referenced uh, those guys kind of a lot. And Oh, just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah, they're good. And it's amazing. Um, you know, I don't think that C.S. Lewis got excommunicated from the church for writing The Great Divorce, but um, <laughs> it, sure, it sure seems like people are kind of hot and bothered about those things all of a sudden again. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that a lot of the the people in my reformed tradition would uh, you know eventually say well you know okay let's say it's not a place of eternal conscious torment let's say it's not a lake of fire that burns forever and ever you know and you know like i think it was edwards that would say you know the the smoke of the sinners would rise up and be a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of the divine and you know crap like that's right crap like uh. that like it's just like disgusting and it's like okay you move away from a lot of that stuff but then, you know, a couple prominent pastors, even ones I respect, kind of hold on to this idea of, okay, but if we throw out this idea of hell, what does that do to what Christ experienced on the cross? So, you know, theology has always been very good at talking about Christ experienced something on the cross, something about sin, something about judgment, something about punishment, you know, not just talking about uh, penal substitutionary atonement, but um, even getting away from that for a minute. He experienced something on the cross that weighs the same or, you know, there's some kind of scales or there's, what do you do with that? What, what do you do with the whole idea of like, what did Jesus experience on the cross then? You know, the songs that we sing in church that say, you know, the, the father turned his head away and, you know, there's this separation yeah. that it's the absence of God. I'd love to hear your commentary on some of those ideas. Well, the, the father turning his head away I think we've really misinterpreted those sayings on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Um, which is just Psalm 22, the, a line in Psalm 22, which means you have to go back to that Psalm in order to figure out what Jesus is talking about. Mm. And there are theologians who deal with this, who say that Jesus, of course, felt like God has forsaken him. Whenever we get into some crisis situation, we cry out to God, where are you? You know, show your face and do mm. something. Mm. Um, and Jesus being fully human felt that same way. But when Jesus was on the cross and of course, when you hold to a, I wrote about this in executing God, when um, you've got to have something for me, something concrete that happens with Jesus's death and resurrection. Yes. I think something concrete happened with his life as well. And I like to, I can't separate those no. out, but in order to talk about it, you have to. Sure, so sure, sure. on the cross, what happened? I think Jesus suffered because of sin. That Jesus's suffering was the result of humans sinning. And even Thomas Aquinas, who holds a satisfaction theory of atonement, said that the human beings that put Jesus on the cross committed a crime. It was criminal. Um, But because Jesus allowed that, because he voluntarily came on a mission to live a human life, to reveal to us the fullest character of God that could be revealed to us by living his life, 
that life meant that sometime he was going to die. The way his life went, the way he lived it, the things that he taught, the followers that he had, probably you would assume, and God would know, that that would include some sort of martyrdom. Hmm. And in those days, that kind of a death for that kind of a person was death on a cross. And so Jesus fulfilled that mission even to the point of dying on a cross. He revealed God to us even to the point of going to the cross and allowing sinful human beings to put him there. And so he suffered as a result of human sin. Um, And so he experienced human suffering like we do. Um, he's like us in all things he's experienced everything we did except without sin he was tempted we told in hebrews but for me if it's not penal substitution and i don't think it is i don't think god was punishing jesus in fact god was you know just as grieved i think by the human condition and the sinfulness that put jesus on the cross as jesus was um, I don't think it was anything that satisfied God. Now, the life of Jesus and fulfilling that mission of coming to live as a human being, I think, satisfied God. But you see other things satisfy God in Scripture. One of those is nonviolent justice God's satisfied by. So those you can't have both. So, But what happened? And I think that when Jesus died on the cross, because human sin put him there, nailed him there, and he looked about as the representative for all humanity and didn't say God smite these suckers because they just sinned. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think that forgiveness as God's representative of all humanity, uttered of the mouth of Jesus, forgave all humanity. Is If the effective prayer of a righteous person avails much, like we're told in the book of James. Yes then Jesus' prayer from the cross that God forgive these people, which is us, all of humanity, was I think that prayer was answered and that God forgave. Right then and there, um, even before that, you see Jesus forgiving sin, which everybody listened to him, knew that only God could do that. So he was, in a way, indirectly claiming some sort of divine authority. Um, think that when Jesus asked God to forgive humanity, that God did. Yeah right then and there. And so Jesus experienced that on the cross that revealed to us in that moment um, the heart of God that we have misinterpreted from that time on. Mm. Man. One of the guests we had on recently was uh, Jack Caputo. and ha, uh, Good friend of mine. Yeah, he's oh, amazing. <laughs> and I just love his idea of, of weak theology, which it, it kind of seems that's kind of the direction you're going where uh, God's power is in his, his love and mercy. Um, that's right. In the ultimate moment where he would have been fully justified, uh, you know, to strike down, rain fire down upon the people who, who killed his son, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And it is, it is a weak theology, except love, although it seems weak to us, is foolishness to us, to other people, you know, that are Christian uh, is really an incredibly, strong force, a non-coercive force, very much like in Taoism. I don't know. I, other religions line up a lot with some things that Christianity teaches. Oh, yeah. But, but the Tao the, um, Te Ching talks about the weakness, be weak, do nothing, 
like water. Water is weak. You can splash in it. You can throw it up in the air. You think, you know, you spray it on things. So it seems to be weak because it's so easily manipulated. Mm. Like people say love is. But then they say, the Tao Te Ching says, but wait a minute, this water carves out rocks. <laughs> it makes um, stone into these mighty canyons with its power that is really a weak source of power, but it's power nonetheless. Um, and I think God's love is like that. It carves out rock, our hearts that are rock and makes them in the hearts of flesh that are um, bent toward loving God in return. Yeah, that's that's such an important distinction. I, I just jotted down a note while, while I was listening to you. Um, you know, that fear, fear may create change in behavior, but love is the only thing that's going to create a change of heart. That's right. Um, and, and one of the distinct, one of the things I, I really thought was, was a huge, huge moment in your book that I'd love to have you talk about that kind of falls along these lines, um, is the idea that you bring up of redemptive justice versus restorative justice and how, uh, as human beings, you know, our, our capacity to love and forgive is is obviously limited you know and yeah. and so we always look at things from a judicial uh standpoint where we want to see justice served you know and, and we want to oh. see that person who who did us wrong get their their just dues um but at the same time we can't conceive can't possibly conceive of an ultimate being whose love is infinite so maybe you could talk about the difference between the two and and kind of how that fits within um this idea of hell yes please well in the comparison is between retributive justice which is not restorative i don't think and restorative justice which is reconciling and i did the same thing i did with fire i did with justice throughout all of scripture and found that the kind of justice that is god's justice In fact, in Isaiah, we're told that where there is violence, there is no justice. And you can take that a step farther and see where there is retribution. It really isn't a divine form of justice. Because you see that justice is reconciling. Um, It's the kind of justice that takes care of widows and orphans, which connects divine justice to righteousness and mercy. Um, It's a doing, this kind of justice. It's always justice is, is, is... coupled with the word asa in Hebrew, which means to do. And it's it's doing justice is to be righteous, to be and do righteousness, to be and do mercy, which is taking care of widows and orphans. It's forgiving people. It's loving your enemies. Um, and that's the kind of divine justice that we see in Scripture um, and the kind of justice that Jesus gives us. And it's actually the kind of justice that delights God, we're told in other places in Scripture, but it satisfies the heart of God when there's nonviolent justice that restores people and reconciles them, that takes care of those who are outcast and um, less fortunate, like widows and orphans. And so if we really take a good look at divine justice in Scripture, we see that eternal punishment cannot be included in that. Um, That's a different kind of justice. It's the justice we see in Amos 24 that rolls like water over the land, that that flows over the land like fresh water. And 
if you've ever been in uh, Israel, a lot of it is dry desert that's just parched, uh, waiting for the rains to come so that, and as soon as they do, beautiful new life springs up in the desert, flowers mm. and plants, and that's the kind of justice that's God's justice, that brings life and newness and rebirth and restores the land to something beautiful. So it's a beautiful image of God's justice. Yeah, and you know what I love about this is uh, it just beautifully led right into um, one of my last questions. I don't know if, I think John might have a couple more, but I just had one more thing that I, I love about your work, and it's, it's something that is in common with most of the work that I feel myself being more and more drawn to. It, well, it, now, it seems to me that your work, as well as the work of several other authors doing similar things right now, is looking at the idea of the eternal, so heaven or hell, whichever one you want to uh-huh. pick, is less about something that happens, you know, way off in the distance, uh-huh. and more something that's a reality right now in our very breath, in our very molecules, in our decisions, in the way we see the world, in our vision, in our worldview, in everything we do. It's it's here, and it's a reality here. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, that for people that that's a new concept um uh-huh. is that just a new agey thing is that just something that's happened is this a, or is this a, a perennial idea that's found within uh scripture within tradition um talk a little bit about that yeah it's definitely goes all the way back to scripture if not farther than that um and it's a point that most people miss and in my tradition the southern baptist tradition the focus was totally on when you die you go to heaven well, what about now? Yeah. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that salvation is now. It's for today. Salvation is for right now, for transforming the world, for the glory of God's kingdom that is here on earth right this minute, um, hmm. which in which the church is the body of Christ. All of us are the living body of Christ on this earth, in this kingdom, for salvation right at this moment for transforming the world. And that, I think, is what salvation is all about. Now, side benefit, okay, you get to go be one. And my theology is very Eastern. So you get to go be one with God after it's all said and done. You're brought up into this Trinitarian relationship of love, which is absolutely wonderful. Mm. But the purpose of salvation is is now, for today, um, to transform the world for God's glory and the furtherance of God's kingdom. We are Jesus on earth, and that is what we are saved to be. Wow. Oh, man, that's so good. I, we only have one more question. We want to be, uh, you know, uh, aware of uh, of your time. And um, so really the last question uh, is just more of, I guess, an observation that I made <laughs> between uh, your two books. Uh, now, you've written about the, the, the topic of hell, and your oh. more recent book is about atonement theory. Um, the link between the two books really seems to be um, kind of like a reflection of how we see God, how we view the divine. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, they're all about, the whole thing is about God and how we see our image of God that we hold, because that will then affect our behavior. Wow. So um, again, I cannot thank you enough uh, for for coming on and, and being so flexible when uh, we had to reschedule so many times. <laughs> um, we would absolutely love to have you back in the future. Um, you do. I would love it. That'd be great. You mentioned you have a new book you're working on. Um, are you able to give a little teaser in terms of what that's going to be about? Sure. It's um, 
it's a systematic, I put that, if you could see me, you'd see me doing little scare quote things with my fingers, systematic theology structured according to the Apostles' Creed, but um, it's going to cover the traditional basics, but every single chapter is going to be focusing on what this topic, um, how this topic deals with the issue of a nonviolent God. So it's really a theology that covers God, Trinity, Jesus, Holy Spirit, um, creation, you know, all the way through the different topics that you have in the theological text, focusing on how do we do theology in view of a nonviolent or anti-violent God. Mm. Oh, that's great. Oh, and do, do you have a release date for that yet, or is that still kind of pending? Well, I have a contract. The release date is yet to be determined. I'm hoping, because I'm still writing it. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I'm in the process right now, actually doing the Trinity chapter, but Ooh. so it's going to take me, yeah, I've really found some good stuff. Um, it's going to take me a while to write it, probably, I'd say a year and a half to two years before it hits the shelves. Okay. Well, in, uh, in the meanwhile, um, where what's the best place for people to go to get your, your previous two books and uh, kind of keep up on uh, what you're up to? Well, my, the books are on Amazon. You can get them in Kindle or hard copy. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, I do have a Facebook page. That's Sharon L. Baker. Um, so you can find me there. And I've got tons of friends. I don't know who they are, but they have <laughs> books, and it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very friendly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think so. Um, uh, I like talking to people. You guys are a blast. Aww, Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So you're worth the wait. Let me say that. Oh, that, you just <laughs> made today's made John's birthday. birthday. Yeah. Today's John's birthday. Oh, you, happy birthday! And you Thank just you. made his whole day. Yeah, seriously. Uh, happy uh. birthday to you. <laughs> if you just Google Sharon Baker or Sharon Putt, either one, uh, you'll come up with stuff. Lots of stuff, podcasts, and all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Perfect. Well, we will definitely make sure that we uh, we promote all your works in our show notes and uh, um, definitely can't wait to, to have you back again to talk a little bit more about this. Um, again, I, I just want to personally thank you uh, for just giving me some alternate theories that you know kind of answered some questions that I had rolling around in my brain since childhood. So good. So we appreciate the work you're doing and uh, and thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Oh, uh, thank, thanks, Sharon. All right. Enjoyed that. I so <laughs> much enjoy it. Would ah, she was so feel, nice, <laughs> so nice, so not like. Of course, I was expecting her to be nice, but like, she was delightful. Yeah, and that one I was looking forward to for so long, and we had some illness issues and some other stuff came, that came up, and I think we had to reschedule with her like like five hundred times, and she was always like, "Yeah, it's cool, we'll get this done," you know. And then finally, when we talked to her. She's so well researched. Oh my gosh, yeah. I still don't personally, I still don't know uh 
where I fall in regards to universalism. I can't get there. There's still an element where I can't, yeah. I want to. Yeah, it sounds great. I really do. (laughs) And I think that like, you know, again, anytime you start to use language, like, you know, you can't quite touch the reality that's underneath all the language. You know, it's just language breaks down. There is some kind of universality. Like, it's in there. You know, the Bible talks about it in, in certain ways. But like, man, yeah, I can't, I just can't. I can't quite get there. Like, I feel like yeah. the people that want, that need to make a jump to <laughs> a firm foundation in eternal, eternal conscious torment and, like, we know exactly what Jesus meant here and we know exactly what Jesus meant there. It's like you're, you're actually taking a giant leap and making a lot of assumptions, which, fine, dude, cool. If that's what you need to do, go, go for it. That, look, we can still be friends. Yeah. But then I was feeling like there was also some jumps being made a little bit. And that's why I pushed her a little bit on the whole, like, you know, universalism kind of deal. Yeah. But I liked her style. I liked oh, the yeah. way she put it across. Like, how she differentiated being a, I'm a Christian universalist. Yes. There is, there is a distinct difference there between the two. There is a huge difference between the Unitarian universalist, mm-hmm. which means none of it really matters. Right. At all. <laughs> there are no distinctions. Let's just have community and seek justice yeah and everybody's gonna be fine and right. that's great okay i like the christian universalism mm-hmm. that gets me closer yeah but man yeah i want to believe everything she believes i'll be honest and, i just don't know if i can get there intellectually yeah and, and at the end i think you you get to a point where if you follow this road far enough you get to a point where we have to just kind of throw our hands up a little and say there's we have to be okay with mystery because it just doesn't say oh right Totally. And we can't, we just can't know. And I think, I don't know if she, she brought this up. Somebody brought this up recently. Um, Was it Richard Rohr? It might, <laughs> it may have been, yeah, I don't know. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, like, unfortunately we haven't been able to talk to anybody who's come back, you know, so they can't really tell us with absolute certainty. No, this is exactly I the way she it is. said that. So it's like, you know, we, we kind of have to guesstimate a little at the end, but I think she presents some really good, important questions that need to be asked leading up to that. Mm. Um, specifically, I really liked what she talked about in regards to why do we read the New Testament so differently than the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. And, and looking at the Old Testament through the eyes of Jesus and looking at, you know, if you, if you get into the book, she has some really great examples of where, you know, God has these opportunities in, in kind of these vengeful, you know, references yep. where he has the ability to completely just smite people, mm-hmm. but he chooses not to because he realizes that, you know, in order to break the cycle of violence, you know, violence just begets more violence. You have to stop the cycle somewhere. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I'm completely down with that. I, I feel like mm-hmm. uh, that's that's really good theology. One of the things that just really struck me is, and I feel like this has been coming up a lot lately in the last year, is just how much medieval theology and and specifically the the theology that came out of the middle ages that inspired works like Dante and William Blake and some mm. of these authors that wrote literature right so medieval literature not even necessarily medieval theology but like when you read this book her book raising hell i thought it was really interesting how every chapter starts with a quote from scripture and a quote from Dante. Yeah. Because she's trying to let you know that like a lot of the ideas, especially the imagery, right? The imagery, the actual like, well, where do you get this whole idea is, you know, seven circles of hell or whatever, nine circles of hell, whatever it is. Right. Where do you get these ideas of, you know, eternal conscious torment? And where do you get the, well, sadly, it's 
not from scripture. Yeah. For everybody that wants to fight about that, it's more from Dante than anywhere else. Can you imagine if that happened now, though? If if we look back and we're like, well, wow, that's not actually found in scripture. That was actually uh, from a Stephen King novel. <laughs> that was from, I think that was Cujo, The Shining. I don't know. <laughs> Carrie? Yeah. Isn't that a line from Carrie's mother? In the, <laughs> like, yeah. How did that end up in there? So I think that's a, an excellent point. And I think um, we'll continue to explore that um, through the next couple episodes. Mm-hmm. And um, just what what really does the Bible say? And the other thing that I think is really interesting that I've been really getting into is how uh, really nuanced the original languages were, uh, yeah. specifically Greek, and and how in certain situations um, there are no English equivalents for certain words in that language. And so, early translations, oh King James, oh yeah, um, you know we did the best we could with what we had at the time, totally. but in certain instances it completely changes the context or uh, the uh, the meaning of of the verse. And so um, I think. Sharon just does an outstanding job of really digging into those situations mm. and looking at the historical context and what it may have been talking about and the fact that, you know, the word for hell that that had was just generically translated to hell so often was derived from like five different words in lots of different words. Two different languages. So nuts to me. Hebrew and Greek, you know. What's nuts to me about that is and I think this came across in her demeanor, in her vibe, in her attitude. The thing we we kind of try to say as much as we can on this podcast, like, can we just chill a little bit? Like, yeah. man, I know we're talking about eternity, and I know we're talking about, but at the end of the day, like, if you believe that there's a God, mm-hmm. like, he's in control, and he's probably not going to, you know, it's not going to make or break your eternal destiny, and it's not going to make or break, well, in some ways it will, but it's really not going to make or break the way you see your whole faith. Right. If you can just allow a little ambiguity and mystery and uncertainty, to, it's there. Just admit it. Like mm-hmm. You can continue to keep believing whatever you want to believe because at the end of the day, we all see what we want to see. We believe what we want to believe. You know, We're all functioning in biases. But I just loved how she wasn't combative. She wasn't crusading. Like She was just like, man, like I just... I think when you look at it, like it's just not as clear as everybody wants to admit. And that's enough for me. Like, why do I need to hold on to this with an ironclad grip? Yeah. You know, it's just, there's too many problems and it's just not necessary. Like, where does Jesus ever say like, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and make sure you have your doctrine of, you know, hell all figured (laughs) out before you can function as a disciple of Christ in this world. Like, that's just mind blowing to me. Yeah, and I think with with anything, like with a lot of the subject matter that we've talked about, um, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, a lot of these things, these touchier subjects that we we kind of approach, um, a lot of people, their immediate defense is, oh, this is, well, I mean, this is the way it's always been. So how can you now say that, that you know, come up with this new theory or whatever, so everybody's wrong? Well, if you really look at it, uh, right. this is not always the way <laughs> not at all. that it was viewed. And you got to you got to keep in mind that the you know the the church as a whole has been around for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and it went through a lot of ebbs and flows. And we're just trying to say, like, if if you dig in and do do your homework and do your research, um, they this is not this is not a new theory. This is not a new idea. Um, you know, Sharon didn't come up with this. Rob Bell didn't come up with it. You he know, didn't? believe it or not, <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> 
No, so I love how everybody says about love wins. Well, that's the book where he says there is no hell. When over and over in the book, he's like, I'm not saying that there is no hell. I believe right. in hell. I believe that there is hell now. I believe that there is hell later. And yet everybody's got this perception of like all these people that are looking to throw hell out completely. Right. And it's like, that's not what's truly going on in this book. And that's not what went on in Rob's or several others. You know, we're going to yeah. talk to somebody else next week. There's just... So many ways to look about that. Look at this, and one of the things I love about what you and I get to do is it could sound frustrating for me to say that the more I learn, the less I feel like I know. <laughs> yeah, but I look at that as a complete, beautiful, wonderful thing because I've realized just how much I've relied on my own assumptions and allowing everything to have this huge degree of dense mystery to it. Yeah creates more worship and wonder in me than than anything else well and it just made me think of a really great idea for a future t-shirt so if we have any people listening out there that can design this uh i just remember the because i'm a kid of the 80s you know 80s 90s i remember uh the gi joe motto <laughs> the more the what was it the more you know no it was uh now you know and knowing is half the battle right so we could do the this would be the opposite of that now you don't know <laughs> and mystery is all of them. <laughs> no, right. I don't know. I don't know. Or something that sounded terrible. terrible. Yeah. That sounded terrible. Somebody can tweak that and work yeah, on it. Yeah. And come up with a cool shirt for that. Figure that out for us. <laughs> yeah. So uh man, yeah. that was that was great. I I'm love excited this. for next week too. This old friend of the podcast old coming back. Old friend of the podcast. Yeah. Another guest returns. Mm. Who will it be? Talking about other theories, alternate theories. There are all other alternate theories uh, based in scripture out there, and we're going to talk about another one next it's gonna week. Be, so. It's going to be awesome. Lots of I'm good excited. food for thought. All you guys having discussion groups out there and baking your noodles, listening to our podcast. Thank you. We love you guys for those making donations and sending us encouragement. Thank you. We love you so much for anybody listening or passing this on to anyone. Thank you. We love you so much. Who's the musical guest this week? Ooh. Do we not know yet? Uh, we do. It is an artist called Erin McCarley. There we go. And uh, her, her music's incredible. And one of the songs that she does on this uh, on this very episode is very eerie, but uh, just a beautiful song. So if you jo guys enjoyed it, check so her you out. Guys, no, John picks out most of our music, and he <laughs> curates the heck out of this stuff and does such a great job. So Thanks, man. Absolutely, dude. <laughs> I think that's all we got, man. Yeah. We'll see you guys all next week for another round of Deconstructionists in Hell. Oh, and we'll see some of you next week for oh, yeah, live. Science Mike Live. Yep. Um, going out for, for uh, beverages afterwards at an undisclosed location. We haven't figured out where yet, but um, come find us at the show. And uh, uh, if you guys want to talk to us, hang out, buy a t-shirt, you know, we'll, we'll be around. It'll be so much fun. And then uh, don't forget about Citizens and Saints coming yes. to Columbus. Check their websites for tickets and times. Those tickets are selling fast, and we will also be at that. Yeah. So until then, uh, thanks for joining us for another round of the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everyone. I cannot begin to even understand Those tears there in your eyes by surprise nothing I could say could make it go away I know it's hard to sleep you can lay your head on me 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.